Father, we do thank you for the great privilege of gathering here together as your people this morning to hear your words spoken. We know that hearing the word alone is not sufficient. We need not only human ears, but spiritual ears and eyes to hear the voice of Christ and to see the glory, your glory, in Him, in redemption. And even as we look again this morning at the great tribulation, in the glory of your justice and your sovereignty displayed even in the judgment of sin. Help us, lead us to the cross, lead us to your praise and adoration in our hearts, and we do pray particularly this morning that you would lead us with hearts prepared for your table to remember the great wonders of redemption, the kingdom that we are now a part of, and the kingdom that is coming. We pray these things in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. Open up your Bibles once again this morning to Matthew chapter 24, to Matthew chapter 24, verses 22 through 28, as we complete our look this morning at the Great Tribulation, the Great Tribulation. Now, as we've noted, as we're going through this section of Matthew, that this is the final half of Daniel's 70th week that we've looked at, coming from Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. It's the final three and a half years, or the final half of that week, just before Christ returns to establish His kingdom here on earth. It is the final years when the coming Antichrist will break his false covenant of peace with Israel and unleash a reign of terror and destruction on the Jews and tribulation saints that has no rival in the history of the world. It's a time of great carnage. It's a time that's looked forward to in many places in the Old Testament prophets. One is in Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 6. Time known as Jacob's distress, distress, the prophet says this, Alas, for that day is great, and there is none like it, and it is a time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. It's a time of great destruction, particularly upon the nation of Israel, the Old Testament covenant, people of God awaiting yet the fulfillment of promises made to them. And yet, that fulfillment will come, and Israel will be saved, in the words of Paul. Now, last week we noted in verses 16 through 21, that Jesus gives four words to those who are going to be alive at that time. Four words to those who are going to be alive at that time. Words specifically designated for those who will experience the terror of the reign of the Antichrist, and the deception and the reign with him of the false prophet. However, the instructions to them flow out of universal principles that apply to all of God's people who are living in a sinful and a fallen world. As we have noted, the spirit of Antichrist is already present in the world. It is already presently active. And therefore, we experience in part some of these things that will be experienced in full at the end of the age, just before the coming of Christ. Indeed, we see paraded before us every day the building blocks the framework for the world that we have described prophetically that will be in place during, again, those final seven years of the tribulation period. Namely, the conflict between Israel and Palestine and the rest of the world. The focus on the temple, which is continually an impulse of the Jews to have that area reclaimed for themselves. We have the rise of Russia, the spirit of antipathy and antipathy toward Christians and the increase of wickedness and so forth. It is a time that is coming, yet what we feel now and what we see now are merely setting the stage. Now the first word of instruction that Jesus gave last week that we looked at was a command to those in Israel and Judea at the time to flee, to flee to the mountains, to flee in haste and without delay when they see the abomination of desolation, according to Daniel, standing in the holy place, standing in the temple. 
They are to flee quickly. They are to flee without regard for their physical possessions in the house. They are to flee even if they are a worker in the field without worrying about their garments. They are to flee with urgency because of the severity of the threat. We notice the second word that he gave to them, and that was the reason for the flight in verse 21, because it will be a time of unparalleled suffering. And it is a time, in this case, where to stay and to die would accomplish nothing. We know that there is a time to stand, there is a time to die, there is a time to give your life, and there is a time where in wisdom that we are to flee. And this time is the time to flee because of the greatness of the persecution. Though the persecution is great, as we'll begin to look at this morning, it is measured. And that brings us then to the third word, which is a word of hope. A word to trust in God's sovereignty and care for His people in the midst of great suffering. So we're going to begin by reading the entire passage again, from verse 15 down to verse 28, and then we'll... Swing back around and pick it up in verse 22. Read with me Matthew 24, verses 15 through 28. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Behold, he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Go back to verse 22 and we'll notice the third word of Jesus to this generation. It is a word of hope in suffering. Namely, that God has measured the duration of the suffering of His people. And we would note first about this, that though it is severe, it is measured and not outside His control. Look again what He says. Unless those days had been cut short, no flesh would have been saved. And again, in parallel to the urgency at which he spoke to his people previously, now he emphasizes again that his instructions flow out of the severity of these times. It is a severe time. No flesh, no people would have been saved had not God sovereignly cut those days short. Again, a picture of complete devastation. Those days, of course, are describing those days that he's been talking about. Those days where they are to flee. Those days of the wrath of the Antichrist that will be unleashed upon the nation of Israel. The severity of it is such that if he did not cut it short, no flesh would have been saved. Who is this flesh? Is it believing Israel that he's talking about? Is it if they had not cut it short, believing Israel would not be saved? Is he talking about all humanity on earth at that time? Who does he mean? He means both. He means both. It would have to include believing Israel because it's specifically believing Israel here that he is addressing as part of the elect, as those against whom the persecution and the suffering will be focused. Because of the Antichrist. We already noted this back in Revelation 13. Don't turn there. 
He who was given a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Authority over every tribe, people, tongue, and nation was given to him. But it also includes all the men of the earth. As we looked at last time, there are two levels of destruction that are happening here. There is the level of destruction by the Antichrist that is being unleashed against the nation of Israel with whom he made a false covenant. And now in this passage, he has broken. And then there's also the destruction of God himself that he is unleashing on the world, all the unbelieving world and rebellious humanity. And it is a devastating destruction, and both are happening at the same time. Listen to some of the descriptions of this. Again, don't turn, I'll just read them to you. Revelation 6, 8 says this, "...that authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beast of the earth." That's the fourth seal that's being unraveled, that's being leashed on the world A fourth of the earth is going to die in battle with a sword and famine and pestilence. He says over in chapter 8, again of this great destruction, here of the trumpet destruction, that a third of the people are going to die in various ways. He says in chapter 8, verse 7, "...the first sounded the trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown down to the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel, a third of the sea, became like blood. The third angel, a third of the ships were destroyed, and a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters." There was a worm star named Wormwood that is fallen and a third of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. In the sixth trumpet, he says in chapter 9, verse 15, And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. In other words, it is great destruction. There is the destruction that is coming from the Antichrist against the nation of Israel, and there is the destruction that is coming globally by the hand of God against all of the unbelieving. Terrible time. But God is reminding His people here, and He's reminding us, that He is absolutely sovereign over the suffering that is going to take place. And this is very important, very important, as we are well familiar with. Because looking only through the lens of experience or looking only through the lens of humanity, looking only through the lens of what is able to be seen, it would look like the Antichrist, the wicked leader, is the one who's in control. He's the one who's calling the shots. He will have almost unrestrained authority on the earth, as we just read. He will have almost unrestrained authority to kill and destroy and devour and deceive. And looking at it from a merely human vantage point, it could seem as though all of the authority and the power rest in this individual and the system over which he presides. However, that's not the lens of Scripture. It's not the lens of faith. It's not the lens of God's people. We do not look at things and judge them only through the lens of experience or from the vantage point of our human perspective, but of God's sovereign control over every event of His creation, directing them to fulfill His eternal purpose. And in the midst of such great suffering, there is a sovereign God on the throne who is directing these events. And that's what the encouragement is. And it's a lesson not only for those of that generation, but for us as well. To be reminded that God is the one who is sovereign over good, and He is sovereign over evil. And He uses evil and He uses sin to fulfill His own purposes. God does that, and that includes even the suffering of His own people. One of the parallels with this is Exodus chapter 9. Let me just read this to you. Remember Exodus chapter 9? That's where the plagues that God had unleashed on the land of Egypt. He says this in chapter 9. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and on your servants, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power, in order to proclaim my name through all of the earth. God had raised up Pharaoh for the specific design to bring difficulty to his people. He kept Pharaoh in power for the specific purpose of displaying God's own power and glory in his destruction, which in part included some of his people, although they were spared from many of the plagues, so that he might make a distinction between his people and the Egyptians. But the point is, is that God was doing it. God was doing it. This is a theme throughout Scripture. He causes calamity and He is the bringer of light. God is the one who is absolutely sovereign over it. God is controlling the rise of Antichrist. God is the one who ultimately gave Him the authority that He will use to persecute His people. We looked at that. God is the one who has determined that He would rise and has determined the length of His power and when He will bring it to an end. God has done that. He has also measured the duration of His own wrath against the world. He is the one who brought it and He is the one who will cut it short. God is absolutely sovereign. And He said specifically that it will be for a period of 42 months that this kind of devastation would go on, or three and a half years. God alone makes rulers to rise, and God alone brings them low and cuts them down according to His sovereign purposes. Antichrist, or any wicked ruler that has ever come upon the face of the earth, is God's ruler, ultimately, fulfilling His purpose. And when He is done fulfilling His purpose through them, He will cut them down, just as He did with Pharaoh, and as he has always done. He alone has the power to bring about such destruction and put an end to it. He's absolutely sovereign over nations, individuals, and our own lives. And we must hold on to this truth. We are not to be anxious. We are not to be overly concerned with the rise and the fall of evil rulers, for we know that God is achieving his purpose. Now, there's a lot to say here, but let me remind you of just one passage. Indeed, at the persecution of his people at the beginning of the spread of the gospel, and even in one of the most wicked or the most wicked act ever perpetrated by fallen man, one of the most evil displays of our rebellion against God, the crucifixion of the Son of God himself, was yet under the sovereign hand of of God. After being beaten for their testimony of Christ, this was the response of his servants in verse 24 of Acts chapter 4. Just listen. O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. All of the world could gather against God's anointed one. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And then they say only that God would grant them the grace to speak with confidence and with clarity the truth of the word of God. They understood the sovereignty of God. And in the midst of that persecution, they understood that God is the one on the throne. God will enable them to fulfill His purpose. And God is doing such, even in their suffering. And just to note also that God has ordained the measure of all the suffering of His people. We won't look at all of the verses. God doesn't give more than He 
his people can handle. And he gives them the grace to endure. And beloved, this is a truth that applies not only to those saints, but it applies to our very own lives. God is sovereign and we must look through the lens of Scripture, not through the lens of our experience, to discern what's going on in our lives and determine to honor Him. A second reason for hope is this, however. Look at the second part of verse 22. That though this suffering is severe, God holds His elect in love and care. He holds His elect in love and care. Not only is He sovereign over these days, but He holds His elect in love and care. Look at the second half. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. For the sake of the elect... In other words, God is not cutting these particular days short out of a mercy for the world in general. He's not cutting these days short out of concern for the suffering of the world in general. He's the one bringing it. Indeed, this is a time of judgment. Listen to what Revelation 14 says, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. God is not cutting it short out of pity for the rebellious. God is, however, concerned for his elect. He is concerned for his elect. And he loves them with an eternal love. And he cares for them even in their suffering. Now, Jesus first used this term, the elect, in the parable of the wedding feast. There it's translated as chosen. Few that are chosen to speak of those chosen to dine at the king's feast. Who is he specifically speaking of here? Some say he's speaking of the nation of Israel. And indeed, Israel is an elect nation. That's repeated throughout the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 4.37 and in many other places. However, it's not likely he's limiting it only to the nation of Israel because more than Israel will be saved during the great tribulation. More than Israel is going to come to a saving knowledge of Christ as Messiah. Let me just remind you of Revelation chapter 7. After these things, verse 9, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. Who are these? He asked later. And the answer is that these are those who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. So it includes more than that. It includes all of those on the earth whom God has called to repentance and to faith in Christ. He refers to them again in verse 24. We'll look at as those who it's not possible to deceive. He says it again in verse uh, later, that these are the ones whom he will gather from the four corners of the earth in verse 31 when he returns to bring his elect to himself. These are all of those who belong to Christ. It's all of those whom Paul talked about in Ephesians 1.5 who were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So he's referring to everybody here generally. However, the elect may also here have a specific emphasis on the elect of Israel. His context here is focusing on the sufferings that are going to come upon the nation of Israel at this time. That's his focus. These are the ones who are most likely to be deceived by the false Christ. We'll look at later. These are the ones who are the most susceptible to the deceptions of the false prophet, the nation of Israel. But in either case, God is promising here that His own are the recipients of His love and His care, even in the midst of destruction. I want you to just notice as a footnote here one other thing. That while God is acting on behalf of, is not acting on behalf of the world, yet the presence of God's people, even during this time, brings some measure of relief to them, to the rebellious world. It's difficult to find much consolation in this because the unbelieving, even though those days will be cut short for them as well, will still suffer the consequences of their rebellion. We read it in Revelation 14. There's still the reality of the judgment to come. There's still the reality of hell. 
And yet they will still, by some measure, receive some of the benefit of those days being cut short. But he's acting on behalf of his elect. And the reminder is here for us, beloved, is that he has not forgotten us in our suffering. He's not forgotten us. And whatever we suffer for the sake of the gospel, or whatever we suffer for the sake of his name, God has not forgotten his people. He's not forgotten his people. And everything suffered by them is measured by his own sovereign purposes and care. And I want to note one other last observation. One last observation before we move on. And I think this is important to mention here. And we don't want to skip over it. And it's this, that though the destruction is severe, some flesh will be spared to enter into the millennial kingdom not in resurrected bodies. Not in resurrected bodies. Just observe this with me. And this is an important point. Often the charge is leveled against the dispensationalists. In other words, those who hold that God has a plan for national Israel, a fulfillment yet of covenants to be given to them, a spiritual fulfillment in which many will be saved before he establishes his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. One of the charges is that it's simply too unreal to suppose that any would survive the destruction that God is bringing on the earth. If he wipes out all that are on the earth, how will there be any to enter into this millennial kingdom? Or it's simply too unreal to suppose that resurrected saints would live alongside unresurrected saints. And who are those who rebel at the end of Revelation chapter 20 and verses 7 through 10 who are deceived by Satan when he is unleashed after the thousand of years to deceive the nations and then to be destroyed by God before the final judgment? Who are these people? Where did they come from? Well, I believe that God answers that in part here in this very verse. God preserves the elect to enter into the millennial kingdom. Look again at what he says. Those days were cut short for the sake of the elect. That is to say, if those days were not cut short, then none of the elect would have survived. However, because they were, some of the elect did survive. Some of God's people did survive. In other words, he does preserve the lives of some of the tribulation saints, here the elect, who will enter into the millennial kingdom on his return. God also spares some of the unbelieving who will be judged after his return. Let me just mention this verse to you in Zechariah 14. We've, we've read it before as we've gone through this. I'll read it again. Speaking of this judgment that's to come at the return of Christ, he says this, Zechariah 14, 12. Now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet, and their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongue will rot in their mouth. The point, the phrase to pick out there is this. All who have gone to battle with the Antichrist under his leadership against Jerusalem. There are some unbelieving on the earth and rebellious who will not be a part of that battle and who were not destroyed upon Christ's return. There was some flesh, even of the unbelieving, who were spared at that time. And it is these, the believing and the unbelieving, alive at that time, who will participate in the judgment of the sheep and goats that we'll look at at the end of chapter 25. Who are those when he comes to sit on his glorious throne who are going to be judged? It is these who are spared. These who are spared. And I would suggest to you also that there are children alive on the earth at this time who will be a part and enter into the millennial kingdom. Isaiah 65.20 reminds us that a child or someone who dies before a hundred will be thought accursed and that a child will be playing next to the hole of a poisonous snake, a cobra, and yet he will be safe in doing so in this millennial kingdom. So there will be those believers in who enter into the millennial kingdom, the unbelieving alive will be judged and then cast away in holding until the great white throne judgment. Those who enter into the millennial kingdom will live alongside resurrected saints, possibly have children, or the children who remained alive after the return of Christ will enter into the kingdom that will end after a thousand years. Regarding the fact that there's resurrected and non-resurrected saints there is indeed unique, but not unprecedented. 
You remember that Christ walked and lived for 40 days among His disciples after the resurrection. And we have a rather enigmatic statement by Matthew at the end of his gospel in 27, Matthew 27, verse 51. It says this, The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs. And after His resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. This is not unprecedented, though it is certainly unusual. But the point here is this, mainly, that he's giving a word of hope. God is sovereign over the suffering that they are going to experience. God is sovereign over our suffering. He has measured it out by his duration. Evil is under the sovereign hand of God. His purposes are being fulfilled. Lastly, the fourth word. The fourth word is this, that he gives a warning of deceit. Again, the deception will be intense. This is verses 23 through 28. Notice first, the deceit regarding the identity of Christ in verses 23 through 25. If anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead many, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance." Jesus has already warned the beginning of this discourse that there would be great deception at this time. That it would be an intense deception. A deception that is even more intense than what we experience now. Now indeed, deception has always been a part of our experience as fallen humanity since the garden. Satan has always had his workers of evil, his deceivers, false teachers, false prophets, those who come in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves, those who present themselves as angels of light but they are in fact messengers of Satan. That's always been the case. That's always been around. False prophets indeed were a constant plague in Israel. Those who claimed to be a voice for God, claimed to speak for God, but in fact they were deceivers. They were liars. They were not to be trusted. They did not speak for God, though they claimed to. I'd make an interesting footnote here also. That these terms, the false prophet, is used almost exclusively in the New Testament in a Jewish context. In other words, again, he's addressing a particularly Jewish temptation that is going to come. False Christ also may bear witness to the fact that this is a particularly Jewish temptation that would come because these are the ones who are awaiting the Messiah. Still, to this day, they're awaiting their Messiah. They're awaiting for His return. False teacher is the term that's usually used of those who are infiltrating the church. That's just a footnote. Now it's already been noted that the ultimate application of this term is to the false prophet who will rise at the time of the tribulation to deceive the world with false signs and wonders. He will be, as we've looked at in the past, the epitome of all false, false prophets of Israel. Satan in this unholy trinity that is in Revelation 13 is to be parallel to the Father. The Antichrist, who is to be the worker of Satan's will on earth, is to be a parallel of the Son. And the false prophet is to be a parallel of the Holy Spirit who points worship towards the Antichrist. It is an unholy trinity. An unholy trinity. And this Antichrist then will mimic the signs of Christ. The signs of Christ through the resurrection and through His death. The false prophet will mimic the signs of the prophets of God, the true prophets of God, and particularly the two witnesses in Revelation 11, in that in Revelation 13, 13, this false prophet will cause fire to come down out of heaven, just like Elijah did on Mount Carmel and like the two witnesses did as they bore witness to the gospel during the tribulation. They will both be operated by the same satanic power. And according to Matthew 24, verse 24, will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead many. I think it's interesting to consider how the signs and wonders movement will play into the thinking of people at that time. 
In any case, there will be great signs, there will be great wonders, there will be things that awe and that tempt to believe in the power of this Antichrist and the false prophet. And as I said, the Antichrist will seek to mimic the role of Christ. The manifestation he will be of Satan's authority and power on earth. He will have what is a false resurrection and establish himself as the ruler over the nations, which is a position of Christ alone who rules over the nations. And yet for this period of time, he will have that. He will rule over every tribe, nation, and tongue, yet in evil and for his own purposes. And I want you to note here, just note this, that this shows the incredible depth of human sin and self-deception. You may say, how? How does it do that? How does it show the depth of sin and self-deception in the human heart? It does in this way. In rejecting the true incarnation of the Son in Jesus Christ, rejecting the real and authenticated miracles of His life, rejecting His real fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, rejecting His real and atoning death, which was public for all to see, it was not done in a corner, rejecting His resurrection, of which was borne witness by the apostles and His people under the power of the Holy Spirit, these will gladly believe and the unbelieving of the nation of Israel and the world will gladly believe in the false accomplishments of the Antichrist while rejecting every true accomplishment of Christ and of the Son. Why? Because repentance is not what they're after and the truth and the unbelieving heart, but it is the fulfillment of their own desire. Listen to this in relation to the Jews. And just listen to this. This is Matthew chapter, or John chapter 5, verse 43. He says this, I have come in my Father's name, Jesus said, speaking here to Jewish leaders. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. In other words, I have come and borne witness to the God you claim to worship. And yet, you reject me. You do not receive me. But one will come, I think there a veiled reference to the very Antichrist he's speaking of here, and you will receive him. You will receive him. What depth of sin lies in self-deception in the human heart. Indeed, he would say of the leaders only a few chapters later that they are of their father, the devil. They are of their father, the devil. So this particularly applies then to the Jews who will fall into the temptation of this coming Antichrist, but it also applies not only to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile and to all who are spiritually dead because of the reality of sin, to all who refuse the light of Christ for the darkness of Satan, who will believe anything but the truth who will believe any fancy story but the truth about Christ crucified and risen and repentance in His name, who will believe anything but the testimony that God has borne towards His Son and therefore calling God a liar and calling Satan the one who is true. Listen to John 3.19. Jesus says this, And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light. Why? For their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And so it is here, though the gospel is going out, even in this most wicked of times... Many will reject that, displaying the depth of our sin. The depth of our sin by nature. And that is what we would all do, beloved, for we're all dead in our trespasses and sin, if God did not take a sovereign initiative towards His elect. If you know Him, it is because of God's Sovereign grace in your life. It is nothing inside of yourself. You have nothing but rebellion and animosity and hatred toward God by nature. It is because God and sovereign grace changed the heart to see the glory of Christ and redemption in Him. And for that, we should give Him nothing but the praise of the glory of His grace in Christ. 
But to reject Him, to believe anything else, to believe that the Christ is over here or He's over there, but it's not Christ Himself, is to show the depth of our heart. But notice what else He says here. The elect alone will be preserved preserved from this deception. A true Christian is an elect of God. And the elect of God will not, even cannot, deny Christ or believe or hold to a false view of Christ. That's what he says. Look again at the end of verse 24. He'll show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible. Read, it's not possible. If possible, to deceive even the elect. John has made this clear. John has made this clear. The spirit of Antichrist is in the world. And there are those who listen to that voice. And then there are those who have known his regenerating grace who listen to the voice of Christ alone through his apostles written for us in the word of God. Who are my sheep? My sheep are hear my voice. And another they will not follow. They will not follow them. The elect here are those who did not love their lives even unto death. They would die before they would deny Christ and follow the Antichrist. They will not receive the mark of the beast at that time. They will not bow to give him the worship that he demands. They will die for their faithfulness and obedience to Christ. This is the mark of the Christian, of the elect of God. And I would just mark as a footnote here that the mark of the elect of God is not to say that I would die in some grand event in which my faith is called into question, but the true measure is an obedience that is all of life. All of life. All of life. A Christian is marked by obedience to Christ. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Here it is those who will keep his commandments and not deny him even unto death, even under these massive temptations and deceptions of the Antichrist. And there's another in this, of course, demonstration of God's love and care for His elect. He preserves them. He preserves them in the truth about Christ and about salvation. No matter what profession a person makes in their life, no matter what experience is proclaimed, no matter what past accomplishments can be pointed to, if someone denies Christ and walks away from the faith, they are not the elect of God. They are not a Christian. John says they went out from us because they were not really of us. Paul reminds us in 2 Thessalonians, there will be a great apostasy. Before this time, those displaying that whatever profession of faith they made, it was not genuine. Here he says it's not possible for the elect to be deceived by the Antichrist. Notice another point. Look at verse 25. He says, Behold, I have told you in advance. I've told you in advance. Don't read over that. Don't read over this. It's massively important. On the surface, it is simply this, a strong reminder to those who are alive at the time to beware of the warning he has just given, to be aware of the danger of the deception of a false identity of Christ, to beware of that, to not fall into that temptation because it will be great. Behold, speaks of the urgency of the message, the significance of giving heed to it. Don't treat these things lightly is the idea. But there is a more universal point for us as well that deeply applies to us and to all people. Namely this. God has spoken clearly. He's spoken clearly in His Word. It's ours to receive and act upon it. It's not merely these things that God has told us beforehand, but all of Scripture, in a sense, is God's prophetic word. It is His instructions to us. He's told us about all things in His word. He's told us about the reality of sin. He's told us about the glories of grace and redemption in Christ. He's told us about the resurrection. He's told us about His sovereign purposes for the universe. He's told us about the rise of the Antichrist and His deceptions. He's told us about the lies of the Antichrist that are in the world now. He's told us that His people will suffer. He's told us that there's destruction coming upon the world. He's told us that there's a king that's coming that will never end and is the kingdom of Christ. He's told us that there's a final judgment of the devil and of 
angels and all who are deceived by him. He's told us of a new heavens and a new earth. He's told us all of these things. He could say of all of scripture from Genesis to Revelation, I have told you beforehand, listen, listen to my word. Therefore, in the words of Peter, in 2 Peter 3.11, he says, If all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be, holy in conduct and godliness? If these things are indeed true, and they are, they should be the foundation out of which we live. It is the worldview of a Christian that God has given us in His Word that governs everything that we think everything that we do, everything that we pursue, if we know Christ. And there are consequences for not heeding His Word. There are consequences. Let me just briefly mention to you, don't turn there again, in Proverbs chapter 1, he says this of those who reject His wisdom. In Proverbs 1, he says... I will then, you neglected in verse 25, all my counsel and did not want my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. That's God's attitude. He's spoken. He's spoken. It is ours to heed and to listen. God takes this serious. Behold, I have told you in advance, be prepared to us. He says essentially the same thing. Behold, I have revealed myself, my plans, my ways, my grace, my judgment in my word. Now respond. Christians of all the people on this earth have the knowledge of eternal truth. We understand why things are the way they are in the past, today, and what they will be in the future. God's told us we are not in the dark. We need not be in confusion. We need not be uh, anxious. God has told us. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, 15-16, that those who have the Spirit of God, we also have in Scripture the mind of Christ and the Spirit to reveal that to us. And we appraise all things, but those who do not have the Spirit can appraise nothing rightly. Nothing. Ultimately, it's going to be a statement of ignorance if we reject the truth of the Word of God. And so before quickly moving to the last point, I would only ask, how does God's Word and the Gospel and the truths of the glory of redemption affect the way that you view the world? Now, obviously, you answer that yourself. What practical difference does it make in what you think about, what you pursue, what you find joy in, what you hope in, and the decisions you make? What difference does that make in your life? That is a question you have to answer. Behold, I told you in advance. Let's note lastly this quickly before we come into the Lord's table. Deceit regarding the location of Christ. And I'm going to skip over a lot here just to get to the point. In verse 26, so if they say to you, behold, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. Behold, he's in their inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Simple warning. Don't chase after every claim that Christ has already come, that he's physically here on earth. And the point is this, the overall point is this. Christ is not coming in secret. He's not coming in some hidden backdoor way. Christ is coming in a way that all will see Him. It will be obvious to all. There will be no need to pay attention to those who say, Hey, He's over here. Hey, He's over here. Hey, He's in the wilderness. Which would be a temptation to some, again, particularly in a Jewish context, because God has much prophetic activity He has in Prophets in the wilderness. If you'll remember in Matthew chapter 11, they went out to see John the Baptist in the wilderness. God works there prophetically. And they'll think, hey, maybe the Messiah is out there. And Jesus is saying, don't listen to them. Why? Because when he comes, you'll know about it. Hey, he's in the inner room. And this is really in contrast to sort of the public place of the desert. Hey, come over here into this secret place. Don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. When Christ returns, you will know it. You will know it. 
it will be evident to everyone. As lightning flashes and is seen by all, so it will be with the return of Christ. As everybody knows where the corpse is because the vultures gather there, so it will be when Christ returns. There may be there a veiled implication about the corpses that the birds will eat when Christ returns of the flesh of those who have rebelled against Him. But the main idea is this. When He returns, it will not be missed. Let me make this final observation that will take us into the Lord's table. It's this. Jesus said at the end of verse 27, So will the coming of the Son of Man be. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus knew, as He was speaking these words, that He was soon to be rejected by His people. He knew that He was going to be abandoned by His disciples. He knew that He was going to be killed by the leaders of Israel. He had told them several times up to this point. And yet He also knows, as we sang it for ourselves, based on His resurrection, He knows that He will rise on a day that was appointed by the Father. He knows that He will rise. He knows that He will return to judge His enemies, to establish His kingdom on earth, and to draw His own near. He knows that. But He knew that first He came to accomplish atonement for the sin of His people, as Jesus describes them here, of the elect, of the chosen ones. He knew that. He knew before this return that He was confident of, of course, that there was first the cross, There was first the suffering for sin. There was first the abandonment of those nearest to Him. The betrayal of one of His own. The abandonment of the Father in some mysterious way that caused Him to cry out at the end of the three hours of darkness, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? He knew that was coming, but He knew there was something beyond the cross. His return. He knew that there was a joy set before Him of the glory afterwards. He knew there was the joy of obeying the Father and completing the work of redemption. He knew there was the joy and the glory of salvation as He redeemed the people who were given to Him by the Father. And we celebrate that this morning at the Lord's table. First, He came in humility, at which He offered His life. His body was broken, symbolized by the bread. His blood was spilt violently from His body, symbolized in the juice. But we are also reminded of the future. That we are to do this until He returns. His kingdom is not yet established on earth, but it will be. Our future with Him is certain. And we are reminded of that this morning. So as we pray, as Ruth plays, and you prepare your heart for the Lord's table, table, make sure that you're coming with a heart that's truly worshiping the Lord. He reminds us in 1 Corinthians 11, we're well aware, not to come to the table in an unworthy manner. If you have any sin in your life that you have not dealt with, if you have any relationship in your life that needs to be addressed, as Matthew warned us in chapter 5, you first leave your offering there and go and make reconciliation with your brother. If you have questions and you're not sure about your own salvation, then let it pass. Let it pass. And talk to one of us, as Pastor Reardon reminded us, or, or someone else about your soul. But for those of us who do come, who do come confident of God's grace in our life, let us come and with hearts of worship, bowed humble and low before our Savior to worship Him. Let's pray. And then Ruth will play and the men will pass out the elements. Father, we ask You now by Your Spirit to prepare our hearts, to prepare our hearts to come and to worship at your table. We ask you now that you would that you would uh, remind us of the great cost of our redemption and that we would, by this remembrance, be encouraged again and afresh and anew as your people to live in obedience to you and for your glory. Produce this in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.